0: Conversations on Healthcare.
1: I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter.
1: Well, Margaret, we've reached a milestone here at Conversations on Healthcare. This is our 300th show. It seems just like yesterday. Well, not actually just like (laughs) yesterday, but it does seem like we launched the program uh, pretty recently.
0: Well, it was back in 2009, Mark, and we remember the nation was very focused on the healthcare debate, and there was so much change in the wind in the healthcare industry at that time and in the whole country. We felt strongly that creating a forum for discussion on these incredibly interesting and important issues was just the right thing to do.
1: It really was. And I think we were thinking, yeah, we'll start local. But guess what? Our first guest was the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who came on the show. And uh, we've had a lot of Brighton top thought leaders in health reform and health policy. So It's been a good run.
0: What a great opportunity for great conversation and bringing ideas to the forefront. In addition to uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, we had Senator Tom Daschle, public health leaders like Don Berwick and Tom Frieden of the CDC, technology innovators and thought leaders like Eric Topol and Esther Dyson, and even some of our youngest game changers like Intel Science Fair winner Jack Andreka, who represents such a smart and hopeful group of young innovators who are poised to really transform healthcare, and science in the future.
1: So much has changed in uh, such a few short years, Margaret. the show has proven to me time and time again how fortunate we are to have so many great minds shepherding the healthcare industry into the 21st century.
0: Indeed, and we've watched the nation respond and adapt to dramatic changes in policy and in care delivery. I am very grateful to all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and wisdom with us, and we in turn get to share it with you, our listeners. What a privilege.
1: It really has been. Certainly high on that American health policy changes was the Affordable Care Act, which is a a lot to discuss and digest. And we still look forward to welcoming many more guests to this show in the coming months and years. Health care, both here and around the globe, is still rife with much uncertainty epidemics like Ebola, HIV, and malaria uh, still must be eradicated. We've uh, expanded coverage to millions more Americans, and we're uh, entering an era of care coordination, pay for performance, and a new focus on transparency on health data.
0: And that's something that today's guest is very knowledgeable about. Molly Ann Brody is the Executive Director of Public Opinion and Survey Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And the foundation's polls provide really vital guideposts for the nation's policymakers as they do their work. So we look forward to our conversation with her.
1: And Lori Roberts stops by, as she does every week. Uh, The Managing Editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at chcradio. We love to hear from you.
1: And, you know, we couldn't do what we do without our great producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. California has become the fifth state in the nation to pass sweeping right-to-die legislation signed recently by Governor Jerry Brown but few approaching end-of-life will be able to access that option. The law states those terminally ill patients who wish to seek physician assistance in ending their lives will have to be of sound mind to be able to administer the drugs themselves and get approval from more than one clinician. The law still leaves out a wide range of people who might want to be covered, people with progressive, debilitating diseases that don't have an obvious 6 months to live prognosis, people with dementia, the fastest-growing health threat in the U.S., There's still vocal opposition to California's End of Life Option Act, but now it's only available to those terminal patients with less than six months to live who can act on their own. California's Governor Brown has also signed another notable measure, a bill protecting children in foster care from being heavily medicated with antipsychotic drugs. Overprescribing these powerful drugs is a national reality, plaguing children in foster care systems across the country, with many children in one study found to be on more than five of these strong antipsychotics. The California legislation, which covers more than 60,000 children and teens in foster care, will allow public health nurses access to medical records to monitor the foster children who are prescribed psychotropic drugs, identify group homes that rely most on these meds, and potentially require them to take corrective action. Johnson & Johnson has begun a clinical trial of a two-shot Ebola vaccine in Sierra Leone. Even as the epidemic fades out in West Africa, the new study will investigate the experimental product's safety and its ability to provoke an immune response to the disease. The world already has one successful Ebola vaccine, with Merck and NewLink Genetics product proving 100% effective in a clinical study in Guinea in July. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines.
1: We're speaking today with Molly Ann Brody, PhD, Senior Vice President for Executive Operation and Executive Director of the Public Opinion and Survey Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She oversees all aspects of the foundation's public opinion survey efforts, including the monthly Kaiser Health Tracking Poll. Dr. Brody is president of the American Association of Public Opinion Research. Her research is published in multiple medical journals, including the Journal of American Medical Association the New England Journal of Medicine and Health Affairs. She's co-editor of the 2011 book, American Public Opinion and Healthcare. Dr. Brody received her M.S. in Health Policy and Management and a Ph.D. in Health Policy from Harvard University. Molly welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. You know,
1: I think most of our listeners know that Kaiser Family Foundation is a nonprofit, nonpartisan health research organization that seeks to be a neutral source of information for journalists, policymakers, and Stakeholders interested in national health issues as well as global health policies. And you also partner with a number of news organizations for public opinion research and analysis, and you offer a monthly report on the mood of the nation as it pertains to health-related policies. But tell our listeners uh, in this ongoing endeavor, national polling on the important health issues, and, and could you tell us how research from the Kaiser Family Foundation helps shape U.S. health policy?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, our mission here is to make sure that the real-life experiences and the views and opinion of people, real people, are part of the policy debates and discussion. So we try to insert facts and analysis into these discussions that can often be quite contentious. We try to make sure the voices of people, especially those groups that might not always be heard around the political um, tables, the uninsured, those who are most likely to have the highest health care needs, those with the lowest incomes or other disadvantaged populations. We just try to make sure that their voices and their experiences and their opinions are part of the debates and discussions going on in, in Washington.
0: Well, Molly the American public, those those real people uh, that you referenced have certainly been given a lot of health policy to consider in recent years. And this, this whole era of reform under the Affordable Care Act has impacted pretty much every aspect of health care in the United States outline for us, if you will, some of the chief areas of public opinion research that's being examined by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And perhaps if you've uh, comment, if you've seen any significant shifts in opinion, how his perception and or acceptance or not of the health law evolved uh, over these past few years at the, at the level of the American public?
3: Um, we've been tracking the views of the American public for decades now, but, but on a monthly basis since the law was passed in 2010. So that means I've probably you talked to more than, you know, 70,000 respondents over that time frame. You know, we, as I said before, we mainly focus on their real life experiences and their views. And we mainly focus our survey work on access to health care and the financing and affordability of that care. Now, what I would say about the Affordable Care Act is that what characterizes opinion on that act is, in fact, its stability over the five years. Hmm. Um, there has been so much contentious debate, and there's been a Supreme Court case, and there've been some, you know, presidential elections and midterm elections, and there's been um, a very rough rollout. But what we mostly see in terms of public opinion is its stability, and in fact, that it's um, from the very beginning it. It's been viewed through a partisan lens, mm-hmm. and in fact, that persists today. As a nation, we're divided in our views of the ACA. Um, about forty-five of us have an unfavorable view of it. About forty-one have a favorable view. But what that divide really masks is an incredibly deep partisan divide. So Democrats have always liked the law; they liked it from the very beginning in 2010, and they still like it today. Um, Republicans have never liked the law; they've always had unfavorable views of the law. They had that from the very beginning in 2010, they still hold that today. Hmm. The um, Those of us in the, in the nation who call ourselves independents, well, it, we sort of look in like we have middle-of-the-road opinions on the law, but when we push the independents to say whether they lean Democrat or lean Republican, we find that they have shared views on the ACA that completely mimic their more partisan um, colleagues. Hmm. Where we are today is almost identical to where we were in hmm. 2010, and my lines, so if you can imagine, you know data points for every month for the past five years, they virtually look like horizontal lines. Hmm. There's been a lot of misconceptions. Those persist. A lot of misinformation. Those persist. So about half of people say they haven't had any personal impact with the ACA. But among those who have, there you know, about a quarter say it was a negative impact and about one in five say it's been a positive impact. And that really differs, again, depending on your partisan leanings.
1: Hmm. You know, we've uh, had David Gergen on the show and and Mm -hmm. David said that while he supported the, you know, the concept of it, it it really just lacked from having that bipartisan, uh, you know, support. And I wonder if you've teased out and when you start to break this down into constituent pieces about coverage for kids up to 26 and no pre-existing conditions, do you see a, a difference if you take out the sort of the partisan element
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things we saw early on is that many of the component parts of the law are actually quite popular Mm -hmm. and quite popular on a bipartisan basis. So people like the idea of kids under the age of 26 or young adults being able to stay on their parents' plan. They like the idea of, of um, insurance companies having to not be able to exclude people because of pre-existing conditions. The couple things that people don't like, you know, then nobody likes to have to be told to purchase something. So the individual mandate has been a component mm-hmm. that's always been unpopular, even on a, on a bipartisan sure. basis. Views of the law overall are as much a reflection of people's views of the presidential administration Administration mm-hmm. and of how things are going in politics um, than they really are about you know health policy issues per se. Hmm.
0: Well, one thing that's certainly very personal to people is cost. And while insurance premiums, you know, they say have risen at a relatively slow rate in recent years, certainly out of pocket costs are on the rise for many American health consumers. And certainly the mandate to purchase insurance and then to choose based on. Your financial responsibilities and deductibles and co-pays, of course, have been really challenging for a lot of people. What are you seeing in your polling about the American public's feelings about this shift in costs and financial responsibility when it comes to health care and out-of-pocket expenses? And how might public opinion shape future pricing?
3: When you get down to it, the thing that Americans worry most about in terms of healthcare is the cost of Mm -hmm. care, and you know they've historically been worried about it. They've been historically worried about the amount they have to pay for their healthcare services. And even though you know most experts and economists have have said that we had a kind of historic slowdown in the rise of prices, well, for average people they still see their costs going up. Um, You know, three in ten have told us that they're not confident that they have enough money to pay for just usual medical costs Mm -hmm. and the copays and Deductibles for insurance, so they can't even. They would. They're not confident they could pay for a major illness, and you know, not surprisingly, these shares rise dramatically if we look specifically at the uninsured or those who are lower income. I think that you know what it comes down to is that a big chunk of Americans say it is really difficult, even if insured Americans. Insurance is no panacea, as we know. You know, a third of insured Americans say that it's difficult to afford their deductibles, their copays, and their premiums. Um, so I think that, you know, quite frankly, it is sort of the underbelly of, of health policy. And you see that reflected in some of our more recent polling about the agenda that they'd like to see the new president in Congress take up or where they'd really like to see some attention focused. And we were almost, you know, surprised to see that when we put things like, you know, um, the cost of prescription drugs or, you know, prescription drugs for specific medical conditions on our list, that they just jumped out to the top. And I think at least some of that is that, you know, more than half of Americans take prescription drugs on a daily basis. They regularly interact and see what their copays are and what the charge is on those drugs. And so it's something that's very apparent in their, in their daily life. And so I think it's one of the reasons why that's a particular area where you see a large number of people tell us that they're worried about it.
1: We're speaking today with Molly Ann Brody, PhD, Senior Vice President for Executive Operations and Executive Director of Public opinion, and survey research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She oversees all aspects of the foundation's public opinion survey efforts, including the monthly Kaiser Health Tracking Poll. Molly there are still another group of people who have benefited in terms of uh, access to health insurance, and they have plans that are offering more than the Affordable Care Act. Sometimes they're called the uh, Cadillac plans, which the Obama administration was hoping to start taxing in 2018. And there's been obviously uh, on this side of the coin a lot of uh, pushback on that initiative. What are you hearing uh, about the prevailing attitude on that subject and more broadly perhaps how do Americans really believe health care should be paid for?
3: Well, first in terms of the Cadillac tax, I mean the name itself will help you predict what the outcome of <laughs> opinion is gonna be, right? That's right? We are Americans and Americans are not very fond of taxes. Yes. But what I will say is that when we gave people more information and, and gave them some messages on either side of that debate, it was interesting that opinion will shift with information. So if they were told that it might lower healthcare costs, right, which is, you know, certainly one of the policy reasons for the, the Cadillac tax then opinion switched um, to the point where we had 55% in favor of such a tax. Um, On the other hand, if we use the arguments for the opponents of the tax, that it's going to actually increase out-of-pocket cost more, then opposition can can grow as much as to 75%. We have to remember that as much as Americans care about healthcare care because it's such a personal issue to people on the other hand they're not health economists <laughs> and um, understanding sort of some of these trade-offs between costs and how the money in the system works is, is not you know where where most people have sort of a, a base of knowledge so when you ask something about you know how do Americans really believe healthcare care should be paid for I think it's tough because you know we don't really understand the financing and the real prices and the real cost of health care Today. Um, I know that people who have employer sponsored insurance are, in fact, generally quite grateful to their employers for providing it and for helping to pay for it. They recognize that it would be very expensive for them to be trying to purchase it on their own. Mm -hmm. And and we also know that it's one of the core benefits that people look for in a job and that concept of job lock that it's still very prevalent in people's minds. They, you know, get and keep jobs because of the insurance that it provides for their families. So, um, besides knowing, you know, a, that it's too expensive to get on their own, I'm not sure that Americans have a real strong sense about how it should really be paid for. <laughs>
0: well, Mollyanne, you recently partnered with the Commonwealth Fund on a survey of primary care providers, and found that while millions of newly insured Americans had gained coverage, it had not produced a significant additional burden on most practices. Tell us more about your findings, maybe in light of both the Medicaid expansion for the lowest income groups, but also the millions of newly insured Americans who gained coverage under the exchange and this ability of primary care providers to really handle this maybe net new influx.
3: Yeah, you know, it when we talk to the, these are primary care physicians and, you know, we're asking them about their practice capacity and asking them about, you know, whether they felt they had the capacity to handle patients. And there's certainly not a sense that they were getting flooded or a sense that they couldn't meet the capacity that was available. So, you know, again, I think it's early on and, you know, you have a lot of states who haven't expanded the Medicaid program, even though, you know, there's been quite an expansion. It hasn't been at, you know, the rate that it might have been if all the states had done the Medicaid expansion. And so at least at this um, early stage, I think in the implementation of the ACA, primary care physicians told us that that so far so good. doesn't necessarily mean they like the ACA. What was pretty interesting about that study is that physicians' views of the law pretty much paralleled the public's views in that physicians who call themselves Democrats liked the law Hmm. and physicians who called themselves Republicans didn't like the law. And their opinions didn't seem to have much to do with actual what was happening on the ground in their practices.
1: Well, and we've uh, entered an era of big data, which is f- finally infiltrating the healthcare system. Uh, in addition to being uh, the pollster in residence at the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, you're also president of the American Association of Public Opinion Research, which is dedicated to the notion that good public opinion research is essential to the healthy democracy. Could you tell the listeners more about your organization's missions and goals and how is big data changing the polling landscape and how's transparency playing a role in the association's work as well?
3: So switching hats for a minute from my role at the foundation to my role as uh, president of the American Association of Public Opinion Research, you know, we believe this is a really, you know, exciting and challenging time for um, polling, the polling industry generally. Uh, the... The big data offers an awful lot of opportunities, but also some challenges, and I think that there's been some really exciting new um, experiments and new um, ways of thinking about how we actually measure opinion and how we can collect data about opinion. At the same time, and it's, you know, one of the reasons the association has been so focused on transparency, because there are so many new methods and so many new ways of going about collecting data, Um, and so many experimental ways, we feel like it's more important than ever for people to make their methods and their choices and their decisions and their assumptions transparent to uh, readers and journalists and um, the, the people who are who are consuming their data so that can, people can make judgments on their own about the, the kinds of methods or the kinds of decisions that went into collecting that data. Um, APOR has a new transparency initiative really with that goal to try to um, basically be in a little bit make it easier for a journalist or for a potential client or for a reader to, to have um, some confidence in the um, type of methods that were employed. If uh, if uh, uh, somebody w- has been in the transparency initiative, it says that they will abide by a set of um, of rules in terms of what kind of disclosure information they make available. Mm -hmm. And I think that can give sort of be a shortcut for journalists and for others on which organizations are producing information that at least um, are being transparent about the the kinds Mm -hmm. of choices and decisions they're making.
0: you know, Malian, it it strikes me that one thing uh, we can count on is public opinion sometimes does change over time. And one thing uh, I am thinking about is the firestorm that was created in the early days of the Affordable Care Act discussions around the idea of providers and patients having frank conversations about end-of-life issues. I know you've recently conducted a a survey on that topic and found that maybe there's been some shift uh, in the opinions in the medical community as well as among patients. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting um point and again, you know, it comes down so much to language. You know, the firestorm that you're I think you're referring to is uh when, you know, Sarah Palin and others death um called <laughs> um called a provision in 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 the healthcare law uh the provision of creating a death panel. Right. Well, I can't imagine any American who likes the idea of a death right. panel. So the fact that there was so much opposition to that, um to that Nomenclature really to that to that wording i don 't think is so surprising what we 've um, recently asked is is much more about end of life conversations, and it turns out that the vast majority of Americans um, support the idea of doctors talking to their patients about end of life um, Decisions and choices, um, although quite frankly only about seventeen percent of Americans say they, they themselves have ever had such a conversation with their doctor. Um, about a third tell us that they have been a part of such a conversation, whether it be for their own care or for you know for family members' cares but um, I think what we're seeing as the Fireweed language, you know, leaves the headlines and instead we talk about a really tough, you know, personal issue about the medical choices and decisions that are available at the end of, of somebody's life and treatment. I think that basically what, what we're seeing in our data is that Americans think it's important for doctors to be part of that conversation. They, they believe that insurance companies, including Medicare, should reimburse doctors for the amount of time that they spend on those kinds of conversations. And they themselves, you know, want to turn to their doctors and to other trusted sources like their, you know, religious um, leaders, their friends, their family members, most especially um, to talk about such issues.
1: We've been speaking today with Molly Ann Brody, Ph.D., Senior Vice President for Executive Operations and Executive Director of Public Opinion and Survey Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. You can learn more about their work by going to KFF.org or by following her on Twitter at Molly Brody and or at Kaiser Fam Found. Molly Ann, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Conversations on healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: We're going to look at a public health issue today, which is firearm death. After a mass shooting in Oregon on October 1st, President Obama claimed that, quote, states with the most gun laws tend to have the fewest gun deaths. Looking solely at the numbers, the data back up Obama, but he went on to imply a causation that's impossible to prove with a scientific random study, that gun control laws lead to fewer gun deaths. He said, quote, so the notion that gun laws don't work is not borne out by the evidence. Let's take a closer look at the evidence. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention publishes statistics on firearm deaths and the age-adjusted death rate, which would be the fairest measurement to compare states. For 2013, the 10 states with the highest firearm death rates, led by Alaska, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, included nine states that got a grade of F for their gun laws by the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence and the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, both groups that advocate for strong gun laws. The 10 states with the lowest firearm death rates, led by Hawaii, Massachusetts, New York, and Connecticut, included seven that got a B or higher for their gun laws. But that's a correlation, not causation. The states with the most gun deaths also tended to have higher rates of poverty and more rural areas that can make getting to a hospital in time difficult. And 63% of all gun deaths were suicides. When we look only at homicide rates Eight of the ten states with the highest homicide rates and eight of the ten with the lowest all got D or F grades for their gun laws. Researchers at Boston Children's Hospital looked at 2007 to 2010 data and found a higher number of gun laws in a state was associated with a lower rate of gun deaths, both overall and for homicides alone. But that report said that it couldn't determine cause and effect.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. No parent wants to hear their young child's chronic health issues are a result of serious defects requiring complex and risky surgery. But that was exactly the case for three-year-old Mia Gonzalez. Plagued for years with severe life-threatening respiratory issues and multiple hospitalizations, her doctors discovered the cause was a severe aortic abnormality that would eventually kill her without intervention. Dr. Redmond Burke, head of the pediatric cardiovascular surgery at Nichols Children's Hospital in Miami, would once have deemed her condition inoperable. So we chose a new tactic, create a 3D printed model of her actual heart to offer surgeons a chance to map out an approach to the complex surgery that would not only minimize the high level of risk, but also yield a more hopeful outcome. This was printed out because she was thought to be inoperable. And by having this type of model, we were able to conceive of an operation that hadn't been done before, connecting the small veins from her lungs up to her heart. Dr. Burke said he carried the heart around with him for weeks, analyzing the problem from every conceivable angle, sharing ideas with colleagues until they agreed upon the best surgical solution. The surgery ended up being a resounding success. Her operation was extremely successful. And she's recovering very well in the um, in the hospital now, and it's just about ready to go home. And now her life, instead of being uh, measured in terms of days and weeks, is going to be measured in terms of years and decades. Dr. Burke said that prior to 3D printing technology like this, they would have deemed her case inoperable or at least too risky to chance. This offered a visual problem-solving solution before subjecting his young patient to complications from risky surgery. While scientists say creating stem cell-generated 3D printed organs for implementation is still years away, this method of deploying 3D technology could help surgeons everywhere create workable solutions to complex surgical problems a 3D printed model of a patient's organ, offering surgeons a visual tool to help tackle complex surgical dilemmas, leading to better surgical outcomes for high-risk patients. Now that's a bright idea.
0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
1: And I'm Mark Maselli.
0: Peace and health.